Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. It was one of the scariest moments in my entire life. It was 2019, and we were at the Fergus Highland Games. Piper, my youngest, was four years old at the time, but already well on her way to being the wild thing that we know and love today. She, if you're not sure, she's the one that's usually tearing around this place like it's her living room on a Sunday morning. She and I had split off from our group of family and friends so I could take her to the washroom. The building that housed the public washrooms was quite busy. It was a thoroughfare of sorts from the fairgrounds to the parking lot. It was also the building where the special guests were invited to give their talks and sign merchandise. It was probably someone from the cast of Outlander. It usually is. The point is, it was a very busy building. Lots of foot traffic. I took Piper to the washroom, and on our way out, she asked to go look at some display. I think it might have been one of those gumball machines. That's fine. And I allowed it while I looked through the window to see the gathering for the special guest. No way I was getting in that lineup. People, I took my eyes off her for less than a minute. Less than a minute. And when I turned back, she was gone. I started calling for her, moving through groups of people rather indelicately. I, I looked outside of the building, thinking she may have wandered out there. We foxhalls have a tendency to follow curiosity and adventure. It happens. So perhaps she went back out onto the fairgrounds. She's only four. She couldn't have gotten that far, I tell myself. After a cursory look around the area, immediately outside the building, I ran back inside, still no baby girl to be found, calling her name incessantly. That sick, terrified feeling set in. I realized how close we were to the parking lot. The bottom of my stomach fell right out, and so many of you know exactly what I'm describing. Panic rising in your throat like bile. Your breathing quickens. It gets faster and shallower. And tears are beginning to form in your eyes when suddenly, there she was. Teary-eyed, standing with a kind-looking woman in a uniform. Have you been there before? With a child of your own, perhaps, or a grandchild, a neighbor's kid, someone you're babysitting, even? You run over to her, you grab her by the arm, and through gritted teeth, because there's an officer standing there, and in a voice tight with anger, you spit out the words, Don't you ever do that to me again! What's wrong with you? Don't you know? And then the words stop, right? as you pull them so closely to your chest and you squeeze them with a rib-cracking embrace that's just infused with all of the love you have in your heart for this kid, you scared me, baby. What would I do if I lost you? You know the feeling. 
The 11th chapter of Hosea stands as one of the most profound demonstrations of God as a parent. In fact, it's one of the few crystal clear times when God is depicted not as a patriarchal warrior monarch deity, but undeniably as a mother, featuring tender expressions of love and nurturing. It was I who taught my child to walk. It was I who took my child in my arms. It was I who healed them, who held them up with cords of love, who bent down to them and fed them, and who treated them like one who lifts infants to their cheek, or as I say, covering their face in a million sweet kisses. A motherly embrace. Oh, if only our children could stay so young and sweet and innocent. It is perfect to have William right here in his mama's lap with a bottle. This is perfect. In the first four verses of Hosea 11, God is a tender and instructive parent, offering wisdom and healing to God's children at every turn. Sadly, it doesn't stay this sweet and this gentle. As the child rejects his parent, verses 5 to 7 reveals God's deep anguish and anger. Like a parent who can hardly wait for their baby to learn to walk and talk, only to become horrified in their adolescence at what they say and do. How did it come to this? Well, I can't speak to your children or mine, uh, but some background on the text will help. Last Sunday, we were with the prophet Elijah in the northern kingdom of Israel. How long will you go about limping with two opinions? Elijah had asked the people of God. If you're following Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who freed you from Egypt and from 400 years of slavery, well then do that. Follow that God. But if you're going to declare for the Baals, the false gods of neighboring nations, if you're going to put your trust in politicians and economies, then fine, do that. Either way, Elijah says, commit. Quit hedging your bets and straddling various religious inclinations. Unfortunately, Elijah's message, while powerful, didn't have lasting immediate impact on the people. One of the primary reasons having been the economic, political, and militaristic prosperity of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was experiencing incredible wealth and wellness under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. It's hard to feel any kind of pressure to change your ways or to choose a side when life seems just so good. Comfort, it seems, makes us apathetic. Isn't that pathetic? A hundred years later, the prophet Hosea shows up on the scene. And by this point, Israel has all but fallen to Assyria. And a miscalculation is in his attempt to resist the encroaching Assyrian empire, King Hosea, this is not Hosea, this is a different person, attempted to ally with, of all countries, Egypt. And the whole deal backfired. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. From a timeline perspective, for those who are interested, uh, we're sitting somewhere around 720 BCE. 
Israel has been reduced to being little more than a vassal of Assyria, with many of its citizens having already been deported. Instead of putting their whole faith and their whole loyalty into God, as Elijah had encouraged them to do a century earlier, the Israelites threw in their lot with the Baals and sought alliances with Egypt and Syria. And so this is how we get the gut-wrenching poetry of Hosea 11. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. That makes sense now, doesn't it? The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. You can hear the grief in God's voice, the anguish-driven anger of verses 5 to 7, in which the divine parent of this passage is pulling their hair out over kids who just won't listen, kids who make horrible mistakes and who earn a parental threat of punishment and rebuke. These are the words of a parent looking back at the pictures of that innocent child as a young adult goes off on their own, full of independent ambition and pride, unaware of the pitfalls that lie ahead, I often wonder if Jesus had this chapter of Hosea in his mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son. The once vulnerable little child has become a recalcitrant teenager. The teenage child bursting beyond vulnerability, has refused the attentions of their holy parent. They have done so by seeking military alliances with the Assyrians and more disastrously with Egypt, the very source of their initial slavery. In the words of Hosea, we hear this parenting God who watches as the people of Israel become more and more distant. We can imagine that verses 5 to 7 are a shrill rant the kind a wayward teenager can evoke from even the most caring and gentle father or mother. The parent is completely exhausted with their child and is willing to leave them to the consequences of their own actions. Israel is abandoned to its self-destruction. Pay attention to that distinction, though. These aren't the words of punishment. They are the recognition of the consequences that follow the choices of a headstrong and wayward people. These are what some parenting educators call natural consequences. God is furious. It didn't have to be this way. But what parent hasn't been wounded by their child? Is it only my kid, the one on the dawning of adolescence and all the turmoil that goes with it, who knows exactly what to say to strike a dagger into my heart. Mommy, you cry a lot. Yeah, I wonder why. She's 11, I still have a long way to go. This child who I have provided for, her every need, the child over whom I have lost sleep, the child I have comforted and cleaned up and coddled and kissed, is it possible that this same baby will break my heart just as quickly as she will fill it with joy? 
God, as the parent of Israel, is in the same position. Israel is the willful child that rebels against the parent, knowing exactly which ways to poke at the parent's most important and valued traditions and highest values. Israel worships other gods. Israel ignores Yahweh and goes back to Egypt, who enslaved her for support. She goes to Assyria's king for aid, even though he does not have her best interests at heart. God sounds angry, and I think God is angry. I get it. But there's a trick to anger. Did you know this? What is demonstrated in a person's tone and affect as anger is almost always masking something else. Countless psychological studies have identified anger as something called a secondary emotion. A secondary emotion is an emotion fueled by other emotions. We're just meat suits full of feelings. For example, if you become hurt in some way, you might express this negative emotion, anger, instead of emotional and physical pain. It might be easier to express anger than hurt. Many people, speaking of hurt, William is feeling it. He's in his feelings. I timed his crying to this part of my sermon. I'll give him five bucks later. Many people are misdiagnosed with anger issues. More appropriately, they ought to be cared for as people who do not yet have the tools to access the feelings behind the anger. When we peek behind the mask that is anger, we can find any number of feelings. Fear, loneliness, rejection, anxiety, confusion, frustration, grief, guilt, shame, embarrassment, jealousy, stress, sadness. Shall I go on? That's just to name a few. If anger is the flame that we see, then something else is usually the wood and the kindling. That's the best way to think about it. The best work that I have done as a minister and as a mother, and it's work that is ongoing, is learning to sit with my feelings in order to find the thing behind the thing. I'm doing my best when I am doing this work. When I am acting out on first reactions and feelings, I am not the best version of myself. Anger, a sharp temper, it is always a mask. It is like armor. So it presents first as a force field, a shield, to protect something much more fragile and vulnerable inside of us. But if anger is a mask, then it is also not showing my children or my church or my family or my friends who I truly am. It can only show a defended version of myself. The real work is when we take off that mask. When I read Hosea chapter 11, I actually see the best model for this kind of work being done by God, the divine parent. 
In verse 8, after the rage and the hurt and the grief and the pain of the previous three verses, there is a full stop, a pause, a deep breath that is taken in and then exhaled with a quiver before the compassion of a parent comes roaring back. Just like when I found Piper in that building and I responded first with anger and then so quickly with compassion and love. The tone and the style of Hosea 11 in this moment, it turns from, from poem to soliloquy, from outward frustration to inward reflection. Hosea describes God's inner life with a turn of phrase that evokes a physical sensation, an inner warming, a stirring, indicating a love so tender that no such measures are possible. How, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Notice that the Israelites have not changed their ways. The tenderness of God's heart is not dependent on the repentance of the Israelites, but on the veracity of God's love for God's children. That's huge, and that's hard work. God is angry, but anger is not who God is. And so it is as if God takes a deep breath, looks inwards, and reminds God's self who they are. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This passage ends in hope. While the Israelites have strayed and must face the consequences of their decisions, those consequences will not have the last word. God's grace will reign and prevail over our worst decisions and inclinations. I'll close with a small history lesson that might put this in perspective. One of the earliest heresies condemned by the church was the teaching of a man called Marcion. Marcion could not reconcile the God of grace and love whom we meet through Jesus in the New Testament with the God of anger and punishment and vengeance whom we meet in places like the book of Joshua or even here in Hosea. Marcion saw the differences between the two testaments as so great that his solution was to pose it to different gods. The gracious God, whom Jesus called Father, must be a different God altogether from the law-giving and sin-punishing God whom the Israelites called Yahweh. Two different testaments, two different gods. Absolute heresy. Marcion simply could not combine justice and mercy. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we struggle with that too. But by rejecting Marcionism, the church has been on record for two millennia now 
that not only can we combine justice and grace in one God, we must do this. To make this work, some today want to make the claim that God changes over the course of Scripture, and I have danced that edge myself. But to say that truly, that God has changed, cuts against the grain of our belief that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But we do allow, actually, for some changes or some new experiences to happen for God. For instance, the Son of God had not eternally been a human being named Jesus, but became human at a certain point. That was a change for God, a new experience, if you will. We also believe that because of what happened to Jesus on the cross, God tasted death for us in a way that had never happened before. So that was also a new experience for God. So it is a fine line. Most Orthodox theologians try to make abundantly clear that the cross of Jesus did not appease an angry, fire-breathing God. God did not become loving on account of Jesus' sacrifice. But rather, it was precisely the eternal love of God that sent Jesus to this world. And yes, to the cross in the first place. Sin was paid for. Some would say atonement was made. What had been wrong was set to right again through Jesus. But God himself was as loving after Jesus died as he had ever been before. One God, the same God of compassion, yesterday, today, and forever. This is the good news, and it's good news for us today, too. Because the world is still in crisis, and we are still straddling more than one opinion and more than one value and more than one religion. How long will you go about limping? Are you ready to face the consequences of your choices? We see it in the news every day. Nevertheless, God says, I am not a man. I am God. I will not execute my fierce anger. I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God is love, we sang at the opening of this worship service. Come heaven adoring, no matter what, God's love and compassion always gets the final word, and we are invited to follow suit. To God be all the glory. Amen.